we were going to go back to the States and get married. And so I moved out of my flat, um, and I'd moved into one of the children's homes there that Warmay Flush operated. And I was um, excited. It was my last day in the city. It was like, I, I woke up early, and early for me is like before 10, or, I mean, this is still sort of early too, but it was really early. And uh, I was excited to see my lady, so I walked out of the, the office where I was staying, and connected to the children's home was uh, an apartment. Um, where some Indian folks that run that home lived, and Felina was staying with them. And to get to that apartment, I had to climb 20 stairs, and they were um, made out of concrete, so I was, I was hustling up the steps. And I um, almost made it to the top, but I didn't, and I kicked my foot against the last step, and I, and I cut the, the bottom of my toe and the bottom of my foot open, and it was bleeding everywhere. And uh, <laughs> so I hopped into um, the apartment, a little grumpy and a little frustrated. And uh, our, our dear Indian friends there went to work. They gave me a little toe cast, and they sent me down to my desk. So I was sitting at my desk in the office, and um, like I said, it was my last day in the city for a while. I was trying to tidy some things up and, and wrap some things up. And as the different folks that I worked with were, were coming in that morning, I sort of put my foot out there to get a little love, a little sympathy. And uh, of course nothing. Nobody noticed. Nobody said anything. And that made me even more grumpy. And... Uh, and it hurt, you know, it's just my toe, goofy toe, but that, it just hurt. And as I sat there, I started to think of the rest of the things that I was going to do that afternoon and jumping on some buses and, and visiting some folks to say goodbye. And, and I started to, to get a little more grumpy, and I was just like, man, Lord, of all days I could have dealt with this, but not today. And it was at that moment that I met a little girl named Sunduja. Now, Sunduja's mother was uh, 17 when she was married to a man that she had never seen before in a traditional arranged um, Indian wedding. And within four years, this young woman became um, the mother of, of three kids. Her husband was, was a violent man. He would um, beat this, this young woman. He would, would throw her to the ground um, of the slum that they lived in, and he would, he would stomp on her. He would punch her. It's like any responsible mother, she took her three kids and she left. And I know that um, being a single parent anywhere in the world is, is not easy, but it is incredibly difficult to be a, a mother of three on the streets of, of South India. And so the only work that this young woman could get was, was at a construction site where she would help carry gravel stones, right, on a, on a metal tray that, that she would balance on the top of her head. She would carry these gravel stones from the sidewalk where they were dropped off to the construction site, back and forth, back and forth, 10 hours a day, 6 days a week. And she was making about $3 a week, right? We hear all these numbers about people in the world who, who live on less than a dollar a day. In fact, that's, that's misleading and that's inaccurate. People are dying on less than a dollar a day. So these children were undernourished. They were, were, were not having their basic needs met. Anyway, one day while, while the women at the construction site were working, all their children were, were on the roadside playing. And in and, and one particular afternoon, uh, a truck swerved out of control and, and it hit Sinduja. And it crushed all the bones in her left leg. Her mother couldn't take it. And so she left this, this little girl and, and, and abandoned her. Somebody found this child and brought her to a hospital, but because there was no one to, to pay for, for, for her medical care, they amputated her left leg. And then they called our children's home. They said, we don't know what to do with this child. Will you take her? Right? So sitting there at my desk, right, complaining about my toe, and this little five-year-old girl hopped in on one leg, not sure if she'd ever see her mother or father or her brother or sister again. Again, and God convicted me, and God broke me. And I was reminded of that story in, in Luke where there were ten men with leprosy. You all know that one? All right, it's a Bible college. You guys know this stuff by heart. 
These ten guys saw the master and they cried out for mercy. And Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as these guys were on their way, they, they were healed, right? But only one of these men came back to thank Jesus. And he said, where are the other nine? That morning I stood guilty with those nine. And, and, and I think that's really, sadly, a reoccurring theme in my life. That I, I um, have yet to really, really beautifully live into a, a spirituality of gratitude. But um, this morning I'm, I am grateful to be here. And I wonder if we could just say one more prayer. I know we do this a ton in our worship services. But just to thank God for the time we have. Is that okay? Yeah, you guys can talk to me, right? No? Okay, well let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness and your love. And this morning we are sorry for the things that we do that insult you, that offend you, that, that, that try to push you away. This morning we are sorry for, for, for the, 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 the postures of entitlement, the assumptions that we make, the things that, that we don't step back and, 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 and give thanks for. And so this morning we are grateful. We're grateful for time together. We're grateful for, for the ways that you've provided for us, and we're grateful for the opportunities that you've made. May we be responsible. Submit those back to you, Lord. May your kingdom may come. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. I uh, appreciate that. That was a very nice introduction. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so my name is Chris Ewerts, and I am with a community called Word Made Flesh. And Word Made Flesh is a, a group of contemplative activists that are vocationally called and committed to serving Christ among the most vulnerable of the world's poor. And so there's about 250 of us. I'm the crusty old guy in the mix uh, who are just spread out all around the world in 13 countries bearing witness to hope. And, and when I say that we bear witness to hope, what I mean is that, that we believe that God is good even though we live in a world that has legitimate reasons to question God's goodness. We work with, with kids who are locked up in brothels who tend... 12, 15 times a day, men climb on top of them and assault their sexuality. And somehow they have the resilience to continue to pray prayers that go unanswered. And so we want to embody the goodness of God through our, our submission, through our sacrifice, through our obedience. We set up community centers and drop-in centers, hospices, children's homes. Um, and, and we do work with a lot of victims of human trafficking, so a lot of little kids who've had to fight in civil wars. We work with um, populations of women and children who are trafficked into the commercial sex industry. And, and we do this um, with a real sort of grassroots sensibility, where we try to challenge and redefine the so-called donor receptor roles and mission. And so we follow our friends who are poor to God's heart. And we're really asking these questions, who saves whom in these friendships and in these relationships? Um, we send out 40 to, to 50, sometimes as many as 60 interns a year for four months. And I uh, would love to include you all in that if you're interested. We uh, place our, our, our interns in clusters in, in some of the cities where we're at. And um, it's a real, I think, a real safe incubator for vocational exploration and vocational discovery. And there's a, a real intense spiritual formation component to that. So um, that's a community that I'm a part of. Um, I'm really grateful to, to be included in it, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. Cool. So just context. Um, what I'd like to, to, to reflect on with y'all this morning is, is some thoughts around community. And, um, and I know we, we probably feel like that's a topic that's worn out. You know, it's like, what else can we say about this? And especially for, for, for a, a place like this, a university like this, where, where y'all probably know each other or of each other, like probably everybody here has at least seen each other at least once on campus. Um, I know that when we, we start to talk about community, it gets a little thin, and it, and, it, and it gets a little 
it's like this ab- externalized abstraction of, of something that I think we all want, but, but something that even if we think we're a part of, we still feel lonely about. And, and I think, um, to be honest about the loneliness, is, is the first step towards trying to understand how can we engage the community we're a part of even better. But specifically, I'd like to talk about remembering community. And when I mean remembering community, I don't mean sort of the memory of what community may have been for you, but I mean remembering it by putting the members of it back together. And so I spend a lot of time on campuses like this. And um, I I, I find that, at least within some of the the Christian schools and universities in North America, um, we generally, this is an observation, not a judgment, we generally sort of have these homogenized, congealed spaces where, where, for the most part, we're really the same in most ways. And that's why we come to these places, because the similarities that we have in common draw us together. And that's not a, a, a bad thing, but that does become a bad thing when it becomes exclusive. And when we forget that there are other members of, of the body that we're a part of that aren't present. And so I'd like to, to sort of reflect a bit on that. A couple years ago, my, my wife and I took some, some sabbatical time. We had been with uh, the Worm Flesh community at that point for, gosh, I guess 12 years. And um, so for us, actually, sabbatical was, was, was long overdue. And we started our sabbatical by doing pilgrimage. Um, pilgrimage is one of the, the historical prayer practices that at least the Protestant um, Christian faith tradition is, is sort of forgotten about. Um, but this was actually, and still is actually, very central to our, our, our broader Christian imagination. And so we made pilgrimage to, to, the, to Santiago, northern Spain. And the pilgrimage, in fact, was the Camino de Santiago. And so we started in southern France and we walked. We walked almost 600 miles, um, carrying everything in our bags, stopping in convents and monasteries and, and pilgrim houses. And it was intensely contemplative. And it was one of the most difficult things that we've ever experienced together, but it was, was beautiful. And so on the, the Camino, we would always stop at these little little churches and, and when we weren't sort of behind on, on sort of our, our goal for the particular day. And we would try to, to reflect a little bit on the walk, on, on, on the journey, on the, on the pilgrimage. And there was one morning where we stopped um, in this church and, and, and I just was, was overwhelmed by... Um, by what I saw, and I actually want to read you part of my journal from, from that morning. Is that cool? No? That's what they say, like, public speaking, you're not supposed to read stuff. Is that right? I don't know. That's like my worst grade in college, so uh, too bad. Sorry for you guys. Uh, anyway, my journal that morning I wrote, on a beautiful Spanish spring morning, after hiking through the worst windstorm I could ever have imagined, my wife and I stopped at an empty cathedral in a small Basque village. The church, full of art, gold, and precious Religious relics was void of people. In the emptiness of the sacred museum, I was offended at how it reflected blatant disrespect from my friends. The value of the gold leaf alone could have provided clean drinking water for many of my friends whose neighborhoods are slums and favelas. I was suddenly reminded of the maternity dispute that King Solomon was asked to resolve. The child was being fought over by two women, both claiming to be the infant's mother. Solomon shrewdly determined that the baby be cut in two pieces so that each of the women who were convinced they were the mother would have part of the newborn. In the same way, the church today seems to be a child fought over by two mothers, the poor and the non-poor. Given the opportunity to determine the true mother of this child, the non-poor historically demanded the baby be severed. 
taking their part of the corpse and trying to revive it. The poor have resuscitated vibrancy in the baby by forming worshipping communities. The poor were forced to cultivate these communities as underground and persecuted churches in China, lively slum churches in South Asia, rural worshipping communities in sub-Saharan Africa and throughout Latin America. The poor resurrected the miracle of the Incarnation. The non-poor, realizing the divine nature of their half of this corpse, sought to revere the memory of the child through lament and memorial. The non-poor built philosophy and culture around the proposed cause of death, covered their half of the child with linen and silk, erected enormous mausoleums and cathedrals filled with priceless art in honor of the baby, and spun its memory off into a thriving enterprise. Our challenge today is to bring these two halves of the child, Christ and his church, back together to find the appropriate ways where wholeness can be celebrated, marrying community and memory. Now that morning, I was, I was overwhelmed. I, I, I couldn't help but, but look. In, I mean, it was gorgeous. It was, it was, it was inspiring, this, this, this little vast cathedral. I couldn't help but think of the, the gold in that place having been plundered from, from the Americas during the, the time of colonialism, conquest. And I thought, what does this say in the places that we worship about who we are? What does this say in, in, in the spaces of how we worship? That's an, a reflection of who we are. And then who is it that we worship together that really tells us who we are? And so that story, right? You remember the story. They say the wisest man who ever lived was, was one of the sons of King David, right? Solomon. And these women... Um, in our community, we don't say things like beggars or prostitutes because we don't over-identify people with, with what they do or how they're exploited. So there are these two women who are known to prostitute. And they come into to, to the throne room and, and they're fighting over this baby. And, and the king says, cut it in half. And, and I think about the symbols in that story, right? That's in 1 Kings chapter 3. I think about the symbols in that story because they're rich. The, the metaphors are, are powerful. They, they, they speak, I think, very, very gently, but very, very profoundly to us. And so there's, there's women. These women, like I said, um, prostituted. There's a baby and there's a sword. All right? Now when we see, the, 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 when, throughout Scripture, when we see um, a, an individual who prostitutes come, into, come onto the scene, when we see someone who prostitutes sort of enter the, the story, the narrative... We, we know that that's usually an indication that, that God's trying to speak to us about ourselves. Right? The church, Christians, those who love God are, 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 are repeatedly sort of reminded of our unfaithfulness, that we are an unfaithful bride. And that though we are unfaithful, though that we, we give our attentions to other things, though that we, we don't give the best of ourselves, um, of our motivations, of our intentions, of our love to, to God... God still loves. God still chooses. God still accepts us. And so I think there's something in this passage that's an invitation to us to reflect on us. Where is our unfaithfulness distancing us from what God has for us? Right? The second symbol there is the baby. And the baby is a target for violence. And I think we, 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 we look at the vulnerability of this, this baby along with the possibility of this baby. Right? When, we see, when we see children, there, there's something that, that, that we need to be very careful about in terms of protecting and validating the, the childhood that is being plundered right now. But we also see the, 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 the possibilities, the potential. 
And I think also when we see this, this, this symbol of baby through the scriptures, it, it's often a metaphor that points us to, to Christ, right? There's something powerful about powerlessness in the Gospels, right? That speaks about this upside-down kingdom. And, and, and so this baby, I think, really is, is maybe here a symbol of Jesus. And the baby is a target of violence, and we know that Jesus is a target of violence, right? When we, when we think about Christ, um, we, we have to ask these questions that, 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 that sort of provoke this violence against the essence of Jesus. And so a friend of mine is named J. Kumar Christian, a South Indian guy, and he wrote a really great book called God and the Empty-Handed. When J. Kumar sort of thinks about this absurdity of the, the vulnerability of, of, of power, the power and powerlessness, and, and we look at the life of Christ embodying that, J. Kumar asks these questions like, why was he born in a manger and not a palace? And why was the good news announced to shepherds and not princes? And why did he minister in, in Galilee and not Rome? And why did he, he choose fishermen and not seminarians? Right? There's these, these contradictions that speak to this. John Sobrino, the, uh, the uh, Salvadorian, the, he's actually a Basque person who's a, a priest in El Salvador, talks about Christ without Jesus of Nazareth is a fantastic abstraction. What he means is we take this idea of Christ and we stuff it up with things that, that are important to us. We stuff it up with things that look like us. We stuff it up with things that, that validate or self-justify how we live, what we have, what we think we want to do. And so that's where we, 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 we have this, this, this culture of Christianity in 2010 that actually seems to be very, very disconnected from the culture of the kingdom of God. Because we've utilize this image of Christ without remembering that there was a person, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in a manger and who did surround himself with fishermen and, and ministered in Galilee. And you know what? This guy also rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a stallion. Well, the other sort of eruption of trying to understand the vulnerability and the, and the target of violence that Christ becomes when, 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 we, when we turn this concept of power upside down is the, is the passage in Luke chapter 4. And this is fantastic. I don't know if you remember this one, but this is sort of the first words out of Jesus' mouth during his public ministry, right? He unrolls the scrolls of Isaiah and he begins to, to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for God has anointed me to preach good news to those who are poor, right? To, to recover the sight of the blind. Remember this one, right? And, and I don't know if you remember what happens, but after Jesus sort of reads the, 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 the scriptures and reflects on it a little, a little bit, everybody in the synagogue is just like, man, that was legit. They love it, right? They want to shake his hand at the back of the church and say, man, that was a fantastic message, brother. Thanks for bringing it. And so they go from speaking very, very well of him. I think that's in verse chapter 22. And Jesus looks in the room and he's just like, and you guys just didn't hear a word I said. If you think that was a great message and you're wanting to pat me on the back, we need to keep going here. And so he starts to talk about a woman who was a widow in Zarephath. And he starts to talk about a man who was, who was a Syrian and, and had leprosy. And suddenly, in six verses, it goes from, hey, we love this guy and we love this message to, we're going to throw this old boy off the cliff. Right? What happens? In these tiny six verses, what happens from, from, from loving the word to wanting to kill the man? Right? He, he, he starts to contextualize the vulnerability of powerlessness. 
And he starts to assault that and, and therefore becomes a target of violence. He says that there was a woman, this widow, who saved the prophet. And maybe you remember the story. Elijah goes into hiding, right, after this, this huge uh, sort of showdown between the, the, the God of the Israelites and Baal. And even though Elijah's God wins, in his fear he, he runs away. And, and at that point, um, there's a famine now. And the famine has hit the, the, the land, and, and, and the rain will not fall until the, the, the mouth of the prophet commands it to fall. But the prophet's, the prophet's gone. Nobody can find this guy. And so, because of the famine, everybody's hungry, and this dude's probably hungry too, and he's walking around town one morning, and he sees this old lady, and he says, Hey, could you make me some bread? And she looks at this guy, and she's like, What are you talking about? We're all starving to death here. She says, I have enough oil and flour to make one more loaf of bread for my son and I and she says and then we're going to die and he says no, 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 no that's not how it works around here he says if you make this bread for me God will continue to provide for you and do you remember that story? right? every single day she made bread for the prophet there was enough to make bread for her and her son now this is the story that Jesus introduces into the synagogue. And this is the story that makes these folks so furious that they want to kill him. What's happening here? Until the mouth of the prophet commands the rain to fall, the famine will continue. And so the people are dying. They're starving to death. But what we see happen in the scriptures here is that this widow, that this woman, saves the prophet. And by saving the prophet, she saves the house of Israel. And that makes me these dudes mad. Because first of all, how can God use a woman to save us? Right? I mean, it's 2010. I imagine we're enlightened enough to, to not have these sort of religious sexism um, problems going on in, in this community. But that's not always the case in worshiping communities. How could God use somebody who's poor? You know, I work with very, very poor folks. And I hear this all the time. Man, if they just pray a little bit harder, they just have more faith, God will provide. Really? Because some of these folks pray harder than anybody I know. Right? So, so somehow God uses a woman. Somehow God uses somebody who's poor. Socially, she's a widow. She's a single mother. So she's probably on the margins of society. Oh yes, and she's a pagan. God forbid that the Lord use anybody who's not religious like us to save us from ourselves. Right? And she's a foreigner. Right? She, she didn't have the right color of skin. She didn't speak with the right color, the right accent. Somehow God uses a poor, socially marginalized woman who's, who's, who's a pagan and a foreigner to save the prophet. And in saving the prophet, saves Israel. And this creates anger for these men. Because in first century Palestine, these Jewish guys thought they were the ones on the margins. They thought they were the ones being repressed by that Roman Empire. They thought the message was about them and for them. And it wasn't. It was about those that their religious sensibilities were marginalizing. And so Jesus becomes a target for violence and they want to throw him off the cliff. Well, the third metaphor here, right? So there's these two women who are known to prostitute, gone before King Solomon. They're arguing over a baby. And so the third symbol here is the sword. And so Solomon says, let's take out the sword and, ch and, and chop this child in half. 
And the sword, I think, is an obvious symbol of the divisions that have, have, have caused tremendous violence, even within a place like this. Right? So several years ago, one of our communities um, works in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone is, is a, a little country in West Africa about the size of South Carolina. It, is, it was, and I think still is, the poorest country in the world. And in the early 90s, these guys found untouched diamond mines in the eastern part of the country. And they knew it was going to get nasty. So they took a government soldier, they chopped his arms off and tied his hands around his neck with a letter to the president. And they said, we're taking the diamonds and if you try to stop us, this is how we are coming for you. And mutilations became a tool of war. In this country of 7 million people, nearly 400,000 folks had their hands or their arms, their legs or their feet chopped off and they would often force children to do it to their own parents as a way of conscripting children to fight in this war. We showed up. During the war, 60% of the country was controlled by the rebels. And one of our first stops was the camp for the war wounded. It was a refugee camp in the center of the, the capital city. It was for the people who had sense enough to raise the bleeding stumps of their arms and run. It was the place where folks who, who somehow didn't die from infection were, were, were holed up together. And essentially it was a big, dirty slum. And as we started to go through this slum and meet folks, there are 3,000 survivors there, we heard the most horrific stories you could ever hear. People were given the chance, right? Long sleeve or short sleeve? Where do you want us to chop? We heard the story of the man who, 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 who took his wedding ring off and put it in his front pocket and that was the last things he ever did with his hands. And I couldn't take it. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And so as I went from room to room and slum to slum, I was overwhelmed. Anyway, I looked across the way and there was this, this girl, probably 20, 22 years old, and, and she had all of her, 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 her limbs... She, she looked able-bodied, and I was like, man, I just can't take another story. So I wanted to go over there and just say, hey, what are you doing here? And she was traumatized, and she did not want to talk, but her neighbors did, and so her neighbors started to tell us her story. Right? The rebels came into her village, and of course they killed all of the men, except for her husband. They made him watch as they gang-raped this young woman. And then they killed him. And as she was laying there, sobbing and crying, humiliated and abused, she looked over at her little baby girl who was two months old, and these guys must have seen her and followed her eyes. And so in one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life, they took this child and they chopped this two-month-old baby girl's arm off at the, at, the, at the bicep. I was sickened. And I looked down and there that little girl was now grown up. She's three years old. And she was sitting in the dirt and she had a handful of peanuts. And she was trying to open one of them. She was biting on that thing and she was pressing it against the nub of what was left of her arm and she could not open it. And I was instantly reminded of the absurdity of us as the body of Christ. We are created perfectly with one another, completed by one another. But we have severed our limbs. And the very, very simple things that God wants us to do, we are unable to do. Right? Who is it that's missing here in this place? Who is it that's missing in your life? What do we mean by affirming gender in worshiping communities? What do we mean by, by making theological commitments to multiculturalism? What does nurturing a spirit of ecumenicism look like where, where Catholics and Protestants, Orthodox and Evangelical Christians can, can worship and work and serve together? And what does it mean to, to be in solidarity with people who are poor? Y'all, I, I don't know about you, but most North Americans I interact with don't know poor folks unless we've gone on a short-term missions trip, unless we've had to do a service project. 
We objectify human need by, by turning it into opportunities for personal discipleship. We have to confess the poverty of our own friendships. Look at your cell phones. The last 10 calls, 15 calls you've made. How many are to somebody who is very different from you? A gay person, a Muslim, a Hindu, a black or a white or an Asian person, a Catholic or a Protestant person. We have severed our limbs and we are not the whole body of Christ. We need to recover. We need to remember. We need to complete who we are through humility and engagement and through friendship. Because doing these sorts of things for the wrong reasons creates new kinds of problems, don't they? And so I want to close with this story. We have a community in Calcutta that works with women um, who are coming out of the commercial sex industry. There's a neighborhood, it's a red light district actually called Sonagachi. It's about two blocks long and, it, and it's nearly 10,000 women and children who've been trafficked into this place. There's police officers at, at both ends of this red light district to protect the interests of the brothel owners. Several years ago, it took us eight years of, of being present in the neighborhood, of our staff having knives to their throats, locked into brothel and threatened by the mafia and the pimps before we finally built enough trust to be invited in. And as we were invited in, we started asking these women, these women who are forced to prostitute, what does freedom look like? What does it take to get out of this? They came up with this idea of making quilts, gorgeous, gorgeous quilts out of old, used-up, ratty saris, right? Sorry, the, the traditional dress worn by women, Indian women. And so they make these scarves now and these purses, and, it's, and they're gorgeous. And we sell them for a ton because we're creating freedom. And, and, the, and, the, and the gift of that freedom is that it creates freedom for others. And the women think it's crazy. And folks in the States are, are, are buying something that was torn up, used up, tossed aside. But that's the point. Because that's how they feel. And to take something that is tossed aside or used up and to make it beautiful and to make it valuable is an eruption of restoration. So we were sitting in the, 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 one of the, 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 we have three community centers there for the women, and, and the blankets are gorgeous. And, and our project director was looking at them and just said, you know, every single one of these is unique, and every single one of these is beautiful, and every single one of these is a piece of art. And artists signed their names to their work. Maybe we should start stitching up tags with your names on this and putting them on your blankets. And so... They, they, they started to ask the women what name they want to use. Now, you probably know this, but folks who experience prolonged sexual abuse and sexual trauma, one of the ways that they cope with that is disassociation. And so they come up with a name that they use when they're on the street or when they're working. And that's one of the, like, if you know folks who, who prostitute or who prostituted, that's one of the reasons they have these crazy names that it's just like, man, that's, I know that's not your name. I know your name isn't Pinky. I know your name isn't Roxy. I know your name isn't whatever. But they choose these names to protect themselves so that when the abuse is happening, it's happening to this person, not to me. And so most of these women had not told anybody their real name for 10, 15 years. But that afternoon, when asked what name they wanted to put on their blankets, only almost every single one of them chose their real name. Again, an eruption of restoration, an eruption of wholeness. So we have a, a, a few friends who are helping our Sorry Body project. And one of them is this guy named Chris Tomlin. He's a songwriter. And he was rolling in town one day, and we gave him a blanket, and we were telling him the story, and we are thanking him for helping us out. And then he did a show that night, and it was crazy. He sold out this arena. The kids loved it. And uh, halfway through the evening, he, he dials the music down. The band walks off the stage. The spotlight hits him. And he starts to tell the story of Sorry Body. And he starts to tell the story of these women reclaiming their names. 
And he starts to look on this blanket. And he says, in this blanket, this blanket was made by... And he finds the name of the woman who made it. And he said, Mukti. And I sat there and I, and I was sobbing. She has been called horrible things. She has been locked in a, in a walk-in room, a walk-in size closet room. And she has been degraded. And in this place of thousands of people, she was being spoken with love. And her name was being honored. And so I go back to the, to, 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 to the office at night and I call the community center up in Calcutta and I'm like, I'm just, I'm, I was so moved, I was so emotional. I was like, I haven't been drinking. I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. There's people here who love you. There's people here who believe in you. There's people here who are fighting for your freedom. And they told me that night that Mukti meant freedom. That that's her name. Now Mukti has prostituted. And much like our unfaithfulness to Christ, we have prostituted the best of ourselves to things that do not matter. And part of that is prostituting ourselves to homogenize, congeal communities that do not make us free. Y'all, I want to encourage you to remember community, to evaluate who you are in context, and to realize that the world will know we are, 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 are gods by our love for one another. May in the freedom of wholeness we proclaim the goodness of, that the kingdom has come among us. And may that lead to the freedom for others. Can I pray that for you? Lord, I, I, I ask that you would give us the imagination and the courage to confess the poverty of our friendships and relationships and to build authentic, beloved community here that your kingdom would come, that we would be able to bear witness to hope and as a whole body we would be free. Free to do the very simple, simple things that you've called us to do. Lord, use these, these students because I know you, you want to use them more than, than we want to be used. Pray that you would go with us now. We pray this in your name. Amen.